Hi everyone, this is Danielle. We're recording this episode of Cyber.RAR on April 19, 2022. We'll be covering the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a conflict which is very much ongoing. With that in mind, much of what we discuss on this podcast may have evolved by the time you listen to it, but it's still worth a listen. Please enjoy. This is Michaela. Welcome to Cyber.RAR, a podcast by Harvard Kennedy School students. I'm one of your hosts, and today, Danny, one of our resident experts, is answering the question, how does cyber fit into the modern battlefield, especially within the context of the Russian invasion in Ukraine? For years, military strategists and cyber scholars have predicted an age of devastating cyber warfare in which adversaries are able to swiftly eliminate critical networked infrastructure, leading to massive loss of civilian life and national resources. Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine seemed like a likely arena for demonstrating this kind of warfare. What actually happened? And how should we interpret Russia's actions in the context of our evolving understanding of the patterns of cyber warfare? How should that inform the US's strategy of cyber warfare? Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be talking with you all about Russia's cyber actions in Ukraine and what those actions mean for the future of cyber warfare strategy. Yeah, this is going to be a really great conversation. So maybe to kick it off, Danny, what's the context for U.S. cyber strategy that we need to understand to interpret Russia's cyber actions in Ukraine and the U.S.'s responses to it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Michaela. We have to start by looking backwards because the U.S. cyber warfare strategy has changed pretty dramatically in just a decade. So if we look back to 2012, then Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta warned that the nation faced the threat of a, quote, digital Pearl Harbor. And the idea was that this would be a devastating attack on critical national infrastructure. Um, Panetta would later say he was being deliberately hyperbolic and kind of attempting to shock the American people into understanding that cyber warfare was something we needed to take seriously. But whether he was being realistic or or hyperbolic, that idea really took root. And theories about a digital Pearl Harbor or Cyber 9-11 really dominated analysts during the early days of US, US Cybercom. And so while the US was worried about this sort of sudden and devastating attack, it was also sorting through how to treat cyberspace as a new domain for conflict, knowing that however it chose to arm itself, it would create a global norm for what its adversaries would do. So we sort of had these two priorities of one, wanting to be able to anticipate and defend against these devastating attacks, meaning we'd need to be at the forefront of the field of cyber weaponry and preparedness, but also wanting to avoid the kind of armament and aggressive action that would precipitate this escalation by other other nations. So just a short two years after Panetta's statement, his successor, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, spoke at NSA and Cybercom in 2014 and said that the U.S. would, quote, maintain an approach of restraint to any cyber operations outside of U.S. government networks. The U.S. does not seek to militarize cyberspace. So this is a really notable statement that we're going to be deliberately restrained. And that sentiment that the U.S. should avoid the use of cyber as a combatant space would dominate the next few years. So, for example, domestic wargaming showed that the U.S. military was really reluctant to deploy cyber attacks or counterattacks out of concern that the conflict would escalate, including into Connecticut, even nuclear attacks. And the U.S. showed this in its foreign policy responses. It persisted in responding to foreign adversaries, cyber attacks with non-cyber measures, measures like sanctions, public attributions, indictments. The one that comes to mind for me is is. China's hack of OPM and the fact that we didn't respond to that with cyber measures. I mean, but what's the benefit of responding to a cyber attack with cyber measures when you have all of these other policy options in the toolkit, right? Like just because an adversary 
did something in cyberspace doesn't mean that the U.S. should needlessly constrain ourselves in the cyber arena. Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing or what we were seeing with that strategy was less a commentary on the usefulness or not usefulness of non-cyber actions mm -hmm. and more a reluctance to escalate cyber armament. So I think I think we've seen very successes and failures with some of those non-cyber tools, but that can occur distinct from whatever our cyber strategy might be. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that will change as we develop our ability to more quickly attribute cyber attacks? Is it a question of attribution that makes us sort of more reluctant to respond in other domains in cyber? Yeah, I think that's spot on, especially because we've seen an evolution in how our national security personnel talk about attribution. One of the common refrains in the early days was it's very difficult to do attribution, so we're reluctant to respond in kind. And that's really shifted in the last few years. So despite this policy of restraint, we've had a militarization of cyberspace anyway, um, especially since that pronouncement about digital Pearl Harbor. We've seen a stratospheric rise in cybercrime, as well as increased nation state attacks on private enterprises. Examples that our listeners might be familiar with include North Korea's attack on Sony. And it's really difficult to say whether the US's strategy of restraint worked. And maybe if we hadn't pursued it, we'd have seen a faster escalation of the use of cyberspace. And that, you know, wondering about that gets us into counterfactuals. But it also may be that our adversaries just didn't believe we were truly attempting to strike that balance of publicly urging restraint while privately preparing, and that our public actions didn't inform their own behavior. And really, it was our it was our private actions to build up our offensive capabilities that spurred the heating up of cyberspace. So in that sense, the developments of the mid 2010s aren't actually a, a good test of does restraint work. And so when you're talking about restraint, uh, just to frame this conversation a little bit better, you're not referring to for example, US operations covertly in cyberspace. You're not talking about Stuxnet in here. You're talking more about cybercom takedowns and other forms of actual military operations, right? Exactly. Okay. And so I guess my follow-up to that, especially with this model that I, maybe I've had some problems with in the last you know, couple of years being in the space, but when we're talking about a, a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor, I feel like that has so many connotations that fundamentally cyber is not <laughs> like, for example, cyber is not going to shock and awe in a lot of senses. And, you know, certain good cyber operations like Stuxnet have been very covert where you didn't even realize that there was a cyber component. Uh, but maybe that's just my own gripe. <laughs> I think that's a, a really prescient description of sort of what happened, where when this domain was new and and sort of sexy in the world of national security, <laughs> that's what you're expecting, a, a shock and awe attack. And the reality has been kind of much more subtle when we think about where the most effective cyber attacks have been. Well, it seems like coming back to the question of attribution, Danny, it seems like no matter what the attribution, the U.S.'s original approach isn't working. So can you talk about how the U.S. has adapted its approach? Sure. So in 2018, the US released a new cyber strategy, and this one emphasized something called persistent engagement. It's basically the idea is the best defense is good offense, and the US needs to be consistently engaged with its cyber enemies and, and, and overall enemies. So since then, we've shown less restraint and uh, more proactive defense, including responding to ransomware attacks with counterattacks, deploying hunt forward teams to find and eradicate threats, and we've also incorporated cyber attacks into kinetic actions. 
which is a, a really notable shift. So in 2019, the U.S. responded to Iranian aggression against U.S. drones and international ships with a cyber operation. And then again in 2019, the U.S. announced it had planted malware on Russian electrical grid as a cyber deterrent. So where we are now is sort of testing the boundaries of this new strategy and finding out exactly what kind of response we precipitate in our adversaries with these new actions. So that all being said, yes, we are in a new world of U.S. cyber strategy, but in many ways we're matching the aggression that's already been shown by our adversaries rather than moving the goalposts ourselves. So we still don't have a good test of what happens when the U.S. decides to use overwhelming force in cyberspace. So applying this to what's dominating the news headline at the moment, how have these dynamics played out in Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine? And for, for the record, we're having this conversation in mid-April, just to, to set the stage for where we are is when this will be released. I'm sure the dynamics will have evolved. Yeah, so recall I just mentioned, it's not that the US is moving the goalposts ourselves, we're sort of matching the posture of our adversaries. Russia is one of those adversaries that in the past decade we've seen be really quite unafraid of potential escalation in cyberspace and, and quite bold in their use of it as a tool. So in that sense, their cyber strategy has traditionally differed from the US, and that's why we expected a, a really dominant show of cyber force during its invasion of Ukraine in, in 2022. And if we look in, especially in its actions in, in its neighboring areas, we've seen it's unafraid to use those tools. So we had hacking and election interference in Crimea in 2014, an attack on Ukraine's power grid in 2015, not Petya attack in 2017. I think one thing that came out recently that I found quite interesting, Booz Allen Hamilton tracked to over 200 attacks by the GRU from 2004 to 2019. And they show that they map quite consistently to Russia's published military doctrine. Its last doctrine was published in 2014, and is supposed to run through at least 2020. And what we saw from that is that in and among what often feels like quite a noisy space of nation state actors, cyber crime actors affiliated with nation state threat groups, it, just a lot going on, that actually when you, when you zoom out and take a big picture view, it, there is quite a pattern to it. And we see at least the GRU engaging in targets that map to its military doctrine. And I think that's important because it tells us what to expect in future kinetic warfare. I want to foot stomp on that. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to double tap. <laughs> um, oh god, I'm turning. I'm, I don't know. Plus one, plus one. <laughs> plus one, plus one. I've, I've decided that we're all going to keep this audio into the, the podcast. Uh, I, I do want to emphasize that, Danny, because I think it's a really, really good point. I mean, you even see that with China's cyber espionage campaigns and how they map almost perfectly to the five-year plan. Like, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about cyber in that it can be like a strategic thing, like cyber war. Thomas Ridd has that seminal piece, like cyber war will not take place. And fundamentally, the points that you're making here, and, and similarly to the points that he makes, is that cyber is a domain and you can use tactics in a domain and they're going to match up with your overall strategy because you're using cyber as a domain to achieve your strategic goals. I think that's really well said. It's not, however, what we sort of were all expecting when this invasion started. It's like we sort of forgot the last decade of learning and all of a sudden went back to expecting this digital Pearl Harbor. And we did see some attacks sort of right before the, the kinetic invasion, in particular, DDoS attack on banks, malware wiper attacks on government networks. 
and an attack on Viasat, a high-speed satellite broadband service. But it wasn't the devastating critical infrastructure attack that is called to mind when you talk about a digital Pearl Harbor. And one really meaningful example of this for me is that President Zelensky was still getting cell phone videos out in waging one of the most successful PR campaigns in recent history, which secured really meaningful resources for his country. And, and that just doesn't happen if the dynamic of cyber warfare is you land a really devastating first blow that first you know 9-11 you, you sort of don't allow that kind of communication to continue happening right when you think about what he's been able to get out i mean he was at the grammys he has a full-on pr campaign that's incredibly powerful and you would think that would be putin's first priority to take down because president zelensky has a voice on the international stage and strategically that is something that putin needs to be considering and it seems like either he's not or is incapable of. Well, it speaks to one of the criticisms that Danny raised, which is that the cyber aspect, even if the cyber aspect doesn't have the sort of shock and awe quality that we may have expected before mid-February, and even if it's taking sort of a backseat to compared to kinetic activity, it is true that Russian cyber activity is, is poorly coordinated with other aspects of Russia's war effort. And maybe that's what's leading to some of these criticisms that are uh, coming out in the popular press and academia. I wonder what your thoughts on that are, Danny. Yeah, you're you're previewing sort of where I've landed on all of this, which is that this isn't the the great test case for what role can cyber warfare play, largely because Russia's strategy overall has been shown to have serious flaws. And so if your overarching strategy is flawed, the the use of your auxiliary tool, which which cyber is, there's a good chance it will also be flawed and that that flaw is not indicative of cyber overall as a form of warfare so much as it is uh, indicative of its application in this case. I think we see that in the way that there was sort of a low level of cyber engagement at first and in late March and now we're into early and mid-April, we're seeing a ramping up of those attacks, which is in line with the sort of repositioning we've seen for Russia's kinetic forces. So a lot has been coming out in the last few weeks. We had Ukraine's CERT warning against a phishing campaign targeting Ukrainian public authorities. That came from threat group Primitive Bear, which is an FSB group. Wiper attacks, more wiper attacks against telecoms, Russian interference with GPS near Finland. You know, it kind of goes on and on. And that might be part of a successful repositioning that then we have to evaluate in a different light than the initial use. Winona, I think you probably have thoughts on this. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. I do, but for our listeners who may not know what a wiper attack is, basically what a wiper attack is, is wiping or overwriting or removing data from a victim machine. That can be done through a variety of ways, but the goal is to basically be destructive. My question though, or maybe a remark, being that person that's like a, this is a question but it's actually a statement is I hear a lot of those <laughs> we love your statements though so we want you to yes. give it oh thanks guys <laughs> um so my remark kind of moving back to Danny and Sophie's point is the left hand not talking to the right hand and how we're not or seeing very much Russian cyber integration with their more kinetic military and I wonder if that's due to the dual nature of cyber as an intelligence as well as a military force where you see a lot of really well-developed and well-executed russian espionage campaigns 
but I wonder how that is relating to their actual military operations and organizational structures, where you see that like that's one of the reasons why NSA and Cybercom are dual hatted with each other. I, that's a great question. And I think especially given the commentary we're hearing right now about Russian intelligence failures uh, leading up to the invasion, it's another space where there might be complicating factors in, in terms of our interpreting what went on. Certainly when you look in earlier days of US cyber strategy, that dual use between intelligence and actions on complicated the use of actions on with, you know, or intelligence services unwilling to compromise access in order to deliver cyber payloads. We've gotten better about sort of resolving that cooperation. And, and I think we're having the left hand talk more to the right hand in the US at least, but it very well could be that Russia is experiencing the same thing and that we're seeing that play out in this invasion. I think we should also remember that we're early on in this conflict. And just because we haven't seen the sort of doomsday predictions materialize yet in cyberspace, we should also consider that that may be a strategic choice in and of itself. I think Putin understands that if he launches a crippling malware attack uh, on Ukraine and that malware seeps across to NATO borders, he's going to have a bigger problem on his hands. Right. And just because we haven't seen that attack materialize yet, I wonder if there's that's part of a broader strategic consideration and that that may yet be to come. Yeah, I think that's spot on. In Michaela. addition, yeah, in addition, we might not want to think about this in a vacuum because U.S. and our allies, we're looking at this and learning from this, but our adversaries are also learning from this, learning from the mistakes that the Russians have made. And so the next engagement or conflict that we might see, our adversaries might have learned from the lack of coordination on the Russian side, and we want to be prepared for that. Yep. I do want to note sort of some things we got right, because um, we've been talking a lot about what we predicted that, that hasn't panned out. So Sophie, I think your point that we may yet see different kinds of cyber attacks and that what's going on right now is a deliberate restraint on Russia's part is, I think there's a good chance of that. A lot, another feature that we sort of predicted, including from the early days of US cyber strategy, was the risk that anybody can engage in cyber warfare. And so we'd have this sort of free for all if this domain was really developed. And we have seen a lot of presence of hacktivists on both sides, both um, organized crime sides from the Russian side, anonymous collective on behalf of Ukraine, the, another collective network, Battalion 65 one of Ukraine's ministers, you know, invited hacktivists. So this is a really sort of new stage of non-state players getting involved in a conflict domain. So I think that prediction did play out. And I'd be curious to see going forward how nation state strategists sort of absorb that development and, and work, you know, deal with it within their strategies. Um, the other thing that played out was an example of the US's 2018 cyber strategy, this persistent engagement strategy. So the US and Ukraine are fighting back. We have preemptive measures against the GRU Sandworm botnet that was in March 2022, um, their botnet Cyclops Blinks. Not General Nakasone recently acknowledged um, in his testimony to Congress providing ready, readiness and intel services to both the US and its allies and also in direct support of Ukraine, including network hardening services and threat hunting. Meanwhile, US companies, Microsoft notably, are dis disrupting GRU cyber operations 
so both in the public and private sector, we are seeing this aggressive defensive action that we said we were going to do. And when we talk about the failures of the Russian attacks, I think a lot of that has to be attributed to really good responses by the US and its allies. So we've talked a lot about different players, things that panned as we out as we expected, things that didn't pan out as we expected. I guess I'd want to turn it over to you guys and, and be curious, what, what do you make of all of that? What does that mean for the future of our cyber warfare strategy? How does it fit with your expectations? How do you change what you think we should be focused on going forward? Can I just say something that I'm going to cut out of this podcast, but I've yes. been thinking of for the last five minutes since you were like, we got a bunch of stuff wrong, but we got a bunch of stuff right too. Is this an equivalent of a rosebud thorn of U.S. assessment of Russia's <laughs> capabilities? That's going to be the title of the episode. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing that this illustrates to me is that there needs to be a much, much clearer and easier way for the private sector to coordinate with the government on understanding both from an attribution perspective, but also just generally at a, at a strategic level understanding how cyberspace is evolving as a domain of war because a lot of these attacks most of these attacks all of these attacks use private sector infrastructure and there needs to be a better way of the government for the government to have a clear understanding of the operating picture and a lot of that comes from the private sector i think this goes back to danny's point earlier about this being a very crowded space You've got nation state, you've got non-state actors, you've got the private sector who enable a lot of this, or as Sophie said, all of this. So how do we go about thinking strategically about all the different actors or stakeholders, as we talk about in many of our HKS classes, <laughs> um, and mapping that? Is it even possible at this point? And how do governments wrap their, yeah, wrap their minds around that? I think that will be a conversation that flows and will continue. And it also comes up in many of our podcast episodes. Good HK shout out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's why we're all here. I, I do want to make a couple points about specifically the hacktivists as well as private sector engagement. I mean, when we're talking about this space being very crowded, I will also say that the effectiveness of the actor really depends on <laughs> how poorly certain systems are defended. And I think that with regards to individual hacktivists, yes, there are some very, very talented individuals. And there is no mistaking that in a lot of ways, the US government and other governments focus largely on corporations rather than individual researchers or individual hacktivists, which you know we can debate whether or not that's the right choice to make or, or how we can interact with these individuals and you know, especially US individuals that are helping support the Ukrainian government. And then on the private sector point, I think that private sector and the government are kind of working hand in hand with regards to shutting down this activity. But fundamentally, the, the incentive there is, is user security. And you don't want these abuse on your platforms. And in this case, the incentives really align here. Uh, and I think that it's important that when we're doing, as Bethan says, stakeholder engagement and analysis, <laughs> that we should figure out when these incentives are aligned and to take advantage of those situations. Winona, what are your thoughts on how we communicate that from a government perspective? Because after the U.S. government received credible threats that Russia would launch some type of attack on U.S. infrastructure, Cybercom and NSA launched their Shield Up campaign. To me, it sort of felt like it fell somewhat on deaf ears. You didn't see a lot of coverage on it in the news. And I wonder if that if that messaging was quite 
right? Or are we at risk of crying wolf too many times? So, I mean, you probably know just as well as I do, Sophie, from working in the industry. And I, you know, will couch all the caveats of like, I've never worked in government, not representative of any institution. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the whole industry, especially the defensive side, su suffers from alert fatigue. I mean, you work in a, a security operations center, there's a lot of false positives in your alerts. There's a lot of feeds that you don't know where the data is coming from. You don't know the veracity of whether or not something coming up your triage queue is actually an incident or is something that doesn't really matter. And so specificity really matters when it comes to government alerts. And I think that that's something that CISA, NSA, and Cybercom had in the, the Shields Up issue where we get alerts all the time about potential threats. When the government is specific, they provide indicators of compromise. They say, hey, this is the Russians, here are their domains, here's a sample of their malware. That is really effective. And I think a generalized warning is really hitting below the mark. Hmm. I, I do want to offer one caveat for that, which is that sure. I agree with you, Sophie. We didn't see a lot of coverage in mainstream media. And I also agree with Winona, there's definitely alert fatigue. But I don't know that any of us sort of were on those calls that CISA initiated with potential targets after they did the Shields Up call. And so it may be that there's a awareness and a, a sort of readiness of posture within those private companies that that just isn't trickling to the outside. That's entirely fair. And like, you know, if we have at least one US company that saw that Shields Up campaign decided to implement two factor and that prevented some Russian activists from that's getting into win. their systems, that's a win. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we like we don't we can't we don't know from where we're sitting what those impacts are. However, that's not to say we can't question, are we getting that fatigue? And is this really the most effective way to communicate these risks? And I think that's a broader policy issue as well, is what is the most effective way? And how do we even study that or decide that? And how do we resource smaller companies who are not Google and Microsoft so that they have the right tools, right people, and right information to be able to address these threats? And this is something Sophie and I will be talking about in our episode. We really want to expand the defense industrial base with small businesses and diversify away from the major primes. But how do we support those small businesses with the capabilities to work in national security and strategic technologies that they could be putting themselves at a higher risk of attacks? So again, looking forward to that yeah, conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that conversation. So if I think about where, where we've traveled today and then where we've ended up, I think there are a few things that we learned. Um, one is that this that Russia's invasion in Ukraine and its use of cyber war warfare is not indicative of cyber warfare as a tactic, largely because it's occurring within the context of an overall military campaign that already had major strategic flaws exposed in it. It's also not proof that Russia's cyber arsenal is weak or you know, not as bad as we thought it was, which was one of the takes that I think came out originally to explain why we weren't seeing overwhelming cyber force from Russia. I do think that this invasion is a reinforcement of that US 2018 strategy and the value of doing the kind of network hardening and threat hunting that the US and Ukraine have done. And I, I think it's a really important reinforcement and encouragement to keep doing that kind of work. And then finally, there are some takeaways here for our partnerships with the private sector around being conscious of giving specific and actionable intelligence to them, avoiding alert fatigue, 
and figuring out how to help not just our big private partners, but sort of everybody and engaging everybody in the fight. Thanks, everybody. This has been really wonderful to chat with you. Looking forward to being with you next time. Tune in. Thanks, Danny. This is cyber.rar. One day we'll be in the room, guys. One day all of us will have the visibility and be in the room. Yeah. Yep. And then we'll look at each other. <laughs> <laughs>